Father, thank you so much for this time now. We thank you for this part of your words that is so rich and encouraging and full of gospel truth that makes all the difference to our lives today. Help us to see how this part of your word fits together so that we, as we approach this part of your word, this term that you would feed us and encourage us and equip us to understand, to teach one another, to walk more closely with you as we study your words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're going to be spending our time looking at chapters five to eight. And the idea is we're, do, we're looking at chapters five to eight in our sermons on Sunday mornings. And yes, you definitely will need Bibles. That's helpful. Thanks very much, John. And um, we're going to be looking at, uh, so Sunday mornings for the next four weeks is Romans five and six. And uh, Sunday evenings for the next four weeks is a little series called The Purpose of Sexuality. Um, and that, we're not going to be talking about that this evening, but um, there are cards for both of those series available at the back um, for you to take away if you'd like. And um, after that, evening service and the morning service will rejoin together and continue. So if you normally come in the evening, um, you might want to uh, catch up with the morning sermon online for the next uh, three weeks at least. The fourth week is actually World Mission Sunday. Uh, which won't be a Roman sermon, it will be a visiting speaker doing something completely different. Um, but again, that's in the morning, and then we've still got the evening thing in the evening. So um, those are the uh, things which are happening for uh, the sermons. And then small groups are going to be, as, as we've sometimes done in the past, small groups are going to be following the series that we do um, in Romans. Okay, so all the small groups are going to follow the Roman series and generally what happens is you follow you do the sermon that you've just heard the previous Sunday but some weeks there'll be a prayer meeting and uh, so you'll you'll miss one um, and normally the best thing to do is to skip that and carry on with the next one um, but if for some reason to do the one that was before the prayer meeting instead then that's absolutely fine or to somehow combine them that's up to the small group leaders to, to figure out so I hope that that's sort of helps make things clear on the practicalities of how it's all working. In terms of actually Romans 5 to 8 then, what we're going to do is we're going to spend just under an hour uh, looking at this before um, small group members can go and then small group leaders will just have a final uh, time together to, to pray and catch up. Um, and we, if you remember, looked at Romans uh, 1 to 4, uh, maybe about a year to 18 months ago. And um, we had a, a series doing that. And let me read to you now um, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. So that is a summary verse, okay? So it, 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 you can see it's sort of transitional. We're going into a new section um, and there's two key words, therefore and since. And they both tell us um, you need to think about what's just happened in order to understand what's about to come. So what I want us to do, first of all, is just uh, to talk around our tables and uh, you can talk together on Zoom. Um, therefore, since, what is the message of chapters one to four that he might be referring back to? So very big picture. Now, if you weren't here and you missed this, don't worry, just listen to what others have to say. That's absolutely fine. But if you've got a little bit of a sense of what might have been going on in chapter one to four, let's talk together and see how much we can remember as uh, we glance back over that. Uh, what might he be referring back to as he gets into chapter five? So off you go for a couple of minutes together. So message of chapters one to four. Christopher Ash gives this the title, gives chapters one to four the title, Coming Under Grace. Okay, so 
very big headlines, he first of all sets out to show that there is nothing we can do of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. Okay, so he's, um, and he goes into huge amounts of detail, ruling out all the different possible ways that people might try and, and prove that, that that is possible. So there's nothing we can do. And then he sets out what Jesus has done at the end of chapter three and shows that Abraham uh, was in, in chapter four, um, did the same thing, which is important if you're talking to a Jewish audience, Jewish Christian audience, um, um, or Jewish Christian people among the, the people that you're talking to want to know whether you're talk, saying something that's completely different from what had been said before. And he's saying this is, this is the same thing. It's always been the case that people have been justified by faith alone in Jesus. Okay, so remember, if you take, I mean, that, that's the sort of substance of what he says. The other question is, why does he say it? What's it? Who's it for? It's for the church in Rome. It's for a church composed of both Jew and Gentile Christians who are in danger of falling out with each other, um, are in danger of looking down on one another in various different ways. Um, it's a church which needs to be united around the gospel and around Jesus. And so one of his big things that he's doing as he's writing to them is saying, um, look at how this gospel is the same gospel for Jew and Gentile, that everybody um, comes on the same terms. So he, he goes into a lot of detail about the law because he's saying, just because you've got the law, just because you've got this great thing that set you apart from the other nations um, in the time of the Old Testament, that doesn't make you more special or more close to God than anybody else. If anything, it highlights your sin. Uh, it doesn't make you more special. So um, the, that, that, that is chapters uh, one to four to say you, you need to be united around Jesus. And the, and the other thing is then for the purpose of mission. So unity for mission. And that's another thing that, you, that, that, that we keep seeing throughout uh, the whole letter. And we end up at the end of chapters 15 and 16, talking about the uh, mission trip to Spain that Paul is going to be, um, or he, he wants to launch. We don't know if he ever managed to launch it. Um, but um, we, uh, he, he wants them to, as they come together and are united, to keep looking outwards. Okay, so the big thing is summarised, though, in verse 1 of chapter 5. That is what he says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that is what he set out to show. That, that is what he has shown in, in chapters 1 to 4. We have been justified through faith. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And... What follows in chapters five to eight unpacks much of what is meant by having peace with God. Okay, now but before we see a bit more about that, let's have a look at what I've put here. So this question about common keywords. Okay, so the, the interesting thing is that chapters five to eight hang together. And if you look at the verses that I've listed in chapter five, and you look at the verses that I've listed in chapter eight, you'll start to notice that the, the words come up again. Okay, so what I want you to do is to see what words those are. And these kind of bookend the whole um, section of chapters five to eight and give us a clue to what they're all about. Okay, so look at chapters five to eight. Uh, look, look, look at those things which point you to those verses in chapters five and eight and see what words are being repeated just for a few moments together. So let's um, let's come back together and have a look. So chapter five, verse three, and verse eight. Chapter eight, verse eighteen. Do you want to call out? What have we got there? Suffering comes at the beginning, at the end. Suffering. Okay, and then uh, chapter five, the next one. What did you get? Hope. 
spirit and uh, glory, maybe. So hope, spirit, glory are all there. What about the last one? Love. There you go. So if we'd done that exercise through the uh, chapters one to four, we'd probably have come up with different words from those. I mean, those, you know, those words are there and there are words there in chapters one to four that are, are in these chapters too, like sin and law. Um, they're, they're definitely part of it. Um, but the tone of what is being said changes in, in these uh, chapters. So we are thinking much more, um, not about what we can't do and what excludes us from God's presence and being in relationship with him. We're thinking much more about what God has done and the results of that and the life that we have and the hope that we have and the love we experience, the peace that we have with him um, and all that that means in our lives. So uh, again, Christopher Ash, very helpful on this. If chapters one to four is coming under grace, chapters five to eight are living under grace. And that's what we've called this um, series we're doing on chapters five to eight, living under grace. So seeing the grace of God at work in our lives as Christians. Now, there is a, a basic one sentence for each little bit outline of the chapters there, which is, which is just quite helpful. And it, it's helpful because it sort of shows a, a shape to the, the chapters um, that um, the beginning and the end match. Um, people might call this, it's not quite a chiasm because I think a chiasm is just A, B, B, A. There's an even bigger, longer word than that one, which is called a polystrophy. There you go. Take that one home for free. Um, but that's what happens when you get this kind of big, long A, B, C, C, B, A kind of structure in, these, in this sort of um, writing. Okay, so this is pretty common in, in writing of this time where themes come and go like this and themes are sandwiched together and they draw attention by, um, the, the, the writer is drawing attention by using the themes in this kind of way to um, what, what, different aspects of what he's saying. So Paul is saying, uh, you know, he's bracketing it with this idea. He starts with the assurance of future glory. He ends with the assurance of future glory in the face of suffering. And so that kind of shows you that what comes in the middle is going to be related to suffering with assurance of future glory. And so the question then is, how is it related? What does it, how does it help us with that? Okay, so um, but those are the things to look out for. What we're going to do, though, is to just go through a little bit more slowly, but not that slowly, um, to just get a bit of a sense of what's going on in these chapters. Now, to fully get into them, we will have to just work our way through them in the sermons and the Bible studies. So we can't possibly do that this evening. So what we're going to try and do is just do a very kind of quick overview that gets us into what's going on. Okay, so you can, you can put hands up, ask questions at, at any point, um, if that's helpful, if you don't quite get what's going on. Um, and if you can try and do that on Zoom as well, I might spot that you're doing that and um, we can hear from you as well. So chapters 5, 1 to 11, David's going to preach on this on Sunday, so um, won't spend too long on this, but... Um, uh, the, the, very uh, briefly, we've got the implications of chapters one to four. We've got peace with God, which secures certain hope for the future, which in turn transforms our attitude to suffering now. Okay, so um, he, he's sort of broadly stating his big themes. We've got these big themes of, uh, look, we've, we've been justified by faith. Look at the hope we've got in the future. Look what difference that makes when you face even suffering. Um, that God is able to work through that to get his plan done. The future is coming. It's sure and certain. Um, so, uh, 
yeah, that's the sort of a good headline for all, all of chapters five to eight. But then pretty quickly after that, we start getting into the, the nitty gritty of various questions that come up. Okay, so the first one in chapters five, 12 to 21 is this question. Um, can my standing with God really depend only on the action of one man all those years ago? Okay, so the point being, he's just said in verses 9 to 11, um, look, how much more are we going to be saved from God's wrath through Jesus, whose blood we've been justified by? Um, we were God's enemies. We've been reconciled to him. We're going to be saved. We can know today, in other words, that when the day of judgment comes, we're safe. And we can know that now and because it doesn't depend on anything that we do. And so constantly in the background, you've got the kind of the religious sort of objection, which is saying, um, hang on a minute, that can't be right. Surely it must depend on what we do in some way. I mean, surely you can't let anybody into heaven. You can't let anybody be friends with God. I mean, surely it does depend in some way on how we live, doesn't it? We, you know, we know that kind of objection. We hear that from ourselves and others all the time today. And it's the same then. And it's in the backgrounds here. And so one reason that that might then lead to um, verses 12 to 21 is because somebody's thinking, can it really be true that instead of it depending on law keeping, which is all about the here and now, you know, I can look at what I'm, you know, surely it's about how I live my life. Instead of that, it's about what somebody else did 2000 years ago in another country. It's got nothing to do with me. Can that really be true? Do you see? So, um, and you can kind of, it, it sounds slightly esoteric and strange to kind of put this up as an objection, but actually you can kind of see how people today would, would, would echo that kind of objection. Um, so people, you know, people want to say, I don't really care, you know, don't talk to me about history. Don't talk to me about stuff that's gone on in another country. I want to know what difference it's making here and now in our lives today and what, what difference the church is going to make in the world now. And um, that's what it's all about, really. That's what God is worried about. But Paul is saying, no, unless you first of all understood what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, or you know, unless you understand that it's all about Jesus, you're completely missing the point. But why? Because he's not here. We can't, well, you can't see him. He's not in my life now. It doesn't, it doesn't appear. So can my standing with God really depend only on the action of one man all those years ago? And his answer is, well, yes, actually, this is, this is how human, the human race works and how things have always been. So he, he, he says, the action of Adam plunged all human beings into sin and condemnation. So what he's saying is, look, human beings have always been people who've, whose lives have been affected by the actions of one person in the past. So all human beings who've ever lived have been affected by the, the actions of Adam, because through what Adam did, sin came into the world, and through sin came death, and through death came condemnation for all people. Okay, so human, you know, you've just got to get used to the fact he's saying that the human race, the destiny of the human race depends in the first place on the actions of the first man, Adam. And if that's the case, no surprise that the destiny of this new humanity also depends on the actions of one man in history, Jesus Christ. Okay, now we today hear that and we kind of take it the other way and go, but that's not fair. You know, first of all, I don't like the idea of original sin, which is effectively what he's talking about. Don't like that. You know, I want it to be all about me. But Paul is kind of saying, well, if you don't like the idea of original sin, you can't really have Jesus dying for you either. Because if you don't like the idea that one man in history, you know, however many years ago, i.e. Adam, that man in history, the actions that he took have an effect on your life now because you inherit his sin and you inherit the consequences of his sin. You sin like him, but your nature has also changed because of him. And so you are a sinner because he first was a sinner and you deserve death and you received the, the, the judgment that he 
um, deserved as well. You know, if you're not happy with that, you can't then have Jesus. You can't benefit from the, the, the death that Jesus died for you. Do you see? So he, he, he's setting out two versions of humanity, the original one under Adam, and then he's saying, now we've got a new one under Jesus, two human races. And the key question is whether you have transferred from the Adam one into the Christ one. And that, that question, are you in Adam still? Every human being's in Adam, but some human beings who trust in Jesus are then in Christ, in Jesus. So have you made that transfer from one to the other? Though that, that, that kind of headline, in Adam or in Christ, then under, is, is underneath everything else that happens in the rest of the chapters. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Okay. So first of all, it's about who you are. What is your identity? Are you in, is your identity in Adam or is it, is, is it in Christ? But the objections then continue. So chapter six, verse one. Effectively, wouldn't it be better then to keep on sinning if we are saved by grace, as this would magnify how great God's grace is? Okay, so if we are, um, if it's nothing to do with what I do, then does it matter how I live? We, we, that's a question people ask all the time, isn't it? You know, when you explain the gospel to, your, to a friend and you kind of go, do you realise that Christians aren't saved by doing good things. That's not why God accepts us. It's because of what Jesus has done. And they say, well, it sounds like you're saying to me that you can just do whatever you like then, doesn't it? You think, well, that's the gospel, isn't it? In one sense, that we're not saved by what we do. But Paul says, actually, to, 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 to think like that is missing the point. So yes, it's true, you are saved by what Jesus has done, but it's not true that you can just say, oh, I'm going to go on sinning then, so, so that grace may increase. Can you see what the so that grace may increase might mean, verse 1 of chapter 6? The idea that, you know, maybe I should sin some more, because that would show how great God's grace is. I'd get some more grace then, because I've sinned more, and then I'll get more grace. Do you see? Do you see the kind of logic? And, they, and, you know, the, and the imaginary person is kind of raising this as to show how stupid the gospel is. The idea that you're, 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 it's got nothing to do with what you do. Because that just means you can do what you like then and just do it more because then you, you can benefit from it. It's just, well, no, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? And so behind that is this idea that we have been transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. We died to sin, we're now alive with Christ. So it's often said, you know, you can go to, um, you can go to Checkpoint Charlie on, you know, in, in, in Berlin, and you can see where people used to try and climb over the wall. But the funny thing is, they only climbed over the wall in one direction, didn't they, from east to west at Checkpoint Charlie. That was the direction everyone was trying to go. People didn't generally, unless they were in a John le Carre novel, they didn't generally try and climb back the other way. Because that's going back into the totalitarian state that people wanted to escape from. You see? So th this kind of question that... Um, uh, that, that, that's being, that Paul is addressing here is, is the same kind of thing. He's kind of saying, look, that's saying, can I just carry on sinning then? You're, you're missing the fact that you've had an identity transfer and that you've come from slavery into freedom. You've come from the totalitarian state where everything's awful into the new life of freedom. And you're, and you're kind of going, but doesn't that mean technically I can, I can go back there and behave like I was over there? Well, why would you want to? That's the point. Why would you want to go back over the wall to, to your old life? So don't go back. That's 6, 1 to 14. And then 6, 15 to 23, um, the same kind of thing with a slightly different answer. 
uh, this time referring to the law. So if there's no longer any law over us and we're saved by grace, why does it matter what we do? Well, the answer, under law, you were slaves to sin. Now you're, you're a different kind of slave. You're a slave to righteousness. You've got a new master. So offer your bodies to your new master, not your old one, because the new master is much better than the old one. Okay, so we're not slaves to sin, we're slaves to Christ. Okay, so, any questions so far? Okay, we'll have some more discussion in a moment when we come to um, Romans chapter 7. So, Romans 7 turns to the question of the law. Now, at this point, it's quite easy to start to think this all sounds a little bit kind of removed from my experience as a Christian. Okay, so we've got to dig into it a bit to really understand what this is here for, for us today. But the, 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 on the surface, the objection that's being made here is from a sort of Jewish perspective that says, hang on a minute, if all that you're saying is true, Paul, what was the point of giving us the law in the first place? What was the point of this law? You sound like you're being pretty anti-law because you're, you're saying you've got, to look, you've got to put your trust in Jesus and law keeping is not going to do you any good. And so he has a, a, an illustration from marriage, verses 1 to 6, where he says, you know, there was a time when you were married to the law, but you, that, that marriage has ended now through death. And you've now got a new husband. You're married to Christ. You belong to him. Um, so it's about him now, not about uh, obeying the law. Um, and then he goes on a bit more to say, actually, you know, the, the whole point of the law was simply, verses uh, 7 to 12, to show you your sin it wasn't there to help you earn god's favor it was there and it's the old illustration that we often have of, of the mirror it's there to show you what you're like so you don't look in the mirror to kind of prove how good you are you look in the mirror to look find out what your flaws are and correct them that's the point of the of a mirror isn't it um, and uh, the law is the same it, it, it shows you, here's a list of things that you aren't doing and that you can't do. This is how much you need Jesus. So he's saying that's the point of the law. So the problem is not with the law. So verse 12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's just that it can't save you because all it does is it highlights what the problem is. And then verses 14 to 25 he drives this argument home with um, these verses. Now, let me read them to you. And then we're going to have a little, little bit of a chat about what we think is going on here. Okay, so I'm going to read you from, in fact, I'll read from verse 13. Okay, and then I want you to think, listen, as I read this to you, I want you to listen and think, is this describing a Christian or a non-Christian? And I want you to then have a chat about it. Okay, so from verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do, do what, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. 
for in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So those verses have been called the doobie doobie doo verses. But um, there's your question, okay? And it's a, it, it, it's a question over which a lot of, um, there's been a lot of discussion um, over the years, uh, but we'll have a, a bit of a chat about it in a minute. But does uh, verses 14 to 25 describe a Christian or a non-Christian? What do you think, having just looked at it? Have a chat. Okay. I promise you, there, there, I mean, there are some wrong answers, but the main question, I'm not going to um, jump down your neck if I disagree with you on the answer. So let's have a show of hands. Okay, so hands up if you think it's a Christian. And hands up if you think it's not a Christian. Very good, that's fine. So I used to think... Um, I think I used to think it was a Christian. Then I thought for a while it probably wasn't a Christian. And now I'm a bit more persuaded that it probably is a Christian. <laughs> so, um, and I think, sorry. And it could be elements of both. I mean, absolutely. And people have, I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole range of different um, ways that people have tried to explain this. Okay, but I'm gonna try and keep it simple. Um, so the, the, the main, I mean, most people have sort of by instinct suggested that I think it probably is a Christian. And I guess the reason that we say that is because we get this sense of conflict going on and we kind of go, yeah, I kind of recognize that in my life. And so it kind of rings a bell, it chimes with our experience. Okay, and I think it is, whatever you think about these verses, it is true that there is conflict um, described perhaps even more clearly, for example, at the end of Galatians, where, you know, we, we're told that, you know, that there is a war going on inside the Christian between our, our two natures. The question is, what exactly is being described here and why? That's really the, the, the question. Um, the reason people might think it's not a Christian is a couple of things. So one is verse 14 is a bit weird at face value when you compare it to what he said in chapter six. So he seems to say, we know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Okay. Now back in chapter six, what did he say? Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Okay, so at face value, you can see, hang on a minute, oh, maybe there is something in this. Um, because he's just told us we're not slaves to sin, and now he's saying we are, if he's still actually talking about um, the, the, the Christian at this point. Okay, and then, and the other thing that, that makes people think, how on, this, this can't be right, is it just seems to be so negative, or at least you can read it like that, and make it feel like it's just describing total failure, as if you're just supposed to go, yeah, the Christian life is just full of failure, and whatever you do is not going to work, and that's all you can say. And actually, then you come to chapter eight, you see, and that you find it's, it's a little bit more upbeat. You've got the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian, enabling you to put to death your sin. And so you think, oh, yeah, no, if there's a change of tone and emphasis in chapter eight, maybe chapter seven is describing something slightly different. Okay, so can you see it's, it's, it's not easy to, to tease all these questions out. Um, but for the people who, 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 who've gone down that line of, this may not be a Christian, you know, things they might say would be, Paul is describing somebody who's, who's living under the law, okay? So maybe he's describing an Old Testament 
believer. So he's just been talking about the law at the beginning of chapter seven. So maybe he's talking about a kind of Old Testament believer who still hasn't heard about Jesus yet. And he's still, and, and, and this is what life was like under the law. But then Jesus came and everything changed for that person. Maybe he's describing not an Old Testament believer as such, but maybe he's describing a New Testament believer who lives like an Old Testament believer um, and, and, and needs to hear about the Holy Spirit and needs to hear about uh, Jesus and, and, and the gospel and realise that uh, life doesn't just have to be one massive conflict. Yeah, so there's various options. Is this an Old Testament believer? Is it a New Testament believer behaving like an Old Testament believer? But here, is, here are some thoughts on why, despite all those things I've just said, this may well still actually be describing Christian experience. Okay, so verse 14, more literally... Um, could be translated, I am unspiritual, which is the same word as fleshly, having been sold under sin. Now, that having been is quite important because he's not saying I am simultaneously both fleshly and sold under sin. He's saying he is flesh, he's fleshy or he's um, in the flesh but that is as a, as a result of his former status of when he was in Adam, okay? So his sinful nature and the sin that he finds still in his body now that he then describes in those verses that follows is because all human beings have at one time been in Adam. So that's the having been bit. So before, you know, all human beings are sold under sin. But what he's saying is now, I am still affected by that, but at the same time, I am also a believer in Jesus who has a new master. So I'm not a slave to sin in the sense that um, he was talking about in chapter six. I have a new master, but at the same time, I have the consequences. Do you see the difference? I have the consequences of having been previously a slave to sin which is that sin remains in my body and therefore I experience conflict in my life. And if you look at verse 23, so he talks about, he says, I, I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And if you look then at chapter eight, verse 23 on the opposite page, we, uh, we not only say we ourselves you have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies so um the, the, he's saying that the body is where he sees the law at work um of the, this this law of sin he sees it in his he, he, in his, in his inner being, he's delighting in God's law, but then he finds that the flesh that he's in still wants to sin. And in chapter 8, we discover that it's not until Jesus returns, not until we have that future glory that we're waiting for, that we will have the new bodies that behave like the new um, identity that we've been given. Okay, can, so you can, this is essentially an expression of the now and not yet aspect of the Christian life. Do you see? So we are in, chapter, chapter five told us we are in Christ now. We know that we've moved from being in Adam to being in Christ, but that is to begin with essentially a new status, a new identity. And then gradually over time, that new identity transforms us on the inside. But it won't be a final transformation until Jesus returns and we get new bodies. Until then, we will find that our, old, that our bodies are still infected by the sin that comes from being human beings who once were in Adam, but are no longer. So I've put a note, and the note is actually on the previous page at the bottom for some reason. 
um, by this guy, Will Timmins. Okay, if you want to think about this in more detail, it's not a long article, um, but that I would really recommend going to, to, to read that. And one of the things that he says is, uh, we have new identities, but we don't yet have new innate capacities. Okay, do you get do you get what that means? It's it's packed into those words, but he's saying, you know, we, we've got we're under new ownership, but the inside of us has still got a big transformation job to do. So it's the it's the old illustration of the derelict house, okay, that's had a really bad owner who's been destroying it and doing nothing to it over the years. But now the new, that, that derelict house has got a new owner who's taken possession and the new owner's in charge now. But on day one, when the new owner takes possession, you look at the house and it looks the same. And then over time, the new owner starts to change things. Now there'll be, there'll be you know, key moments along the way where it's really obvious that the new owner's in charge and, and something's different happened and, and there'll be, key changes on day one, instant changes, but there'll be other things which change much more slowly over time. But the point is it's under new ownership now. And so what chapter seven seems to be describing is that conflict between the fact that there's a new owner who, who wants things done properly now, and the fact that you're working with a derelict building that needs to be um, repaired, okay? And so that is why we experience, we still experience, we kind of think, yeah, I'm a Christian. That means I want to love my brothers and sisters. Yeah, but I still feel really selfish sometimes. And I just act for my own benefit and just think about myself. Well, that's because we are we're people who have previously been slaves to sin. And so the effects of that still live with us while we wait for Jesus to return and while we live now under new ownership. And so the point beyond that then is that there is nothing in us naturally that can cause us to keep God's law. That's why he's saying this here. He wants to prove to the person who says, no, but surely the law must have a place somewhere in the Christian life. You know, surely, you know, really what it comes down to is we've just all got to try a bit harder to be better people. And that's really what the Christian is. Say, so, no, no, if you try and do that, there's nothing in you that will do that. When the new owner takes over on day one, there is nothing in that building to make it look like a good building. There's nothing there. And any change that takes place won't be down to the residents of that building who've been living under the old owner all that time. It'll be down to the new owner doing things by his initiative. So the new owner's going to have to come in and put in the new windows. And the new owner's going to have to come in and repair the doors and get rid of the rats and do all the things that have to be done in this house. It's all going to be down to the new owner, not the, uh, not the tenants or whatever. Slightly stretching the metaphor there. But you get the idea. So there's nothing in us naturally, and therefore it is normal to experience inner conflict between what we know is true and what our sinful desires want to do. So, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, you're going to have to look to Jesus, and that is chapter 8. And we're going to do chapter 8 in the sermons relatively slowly. So actually, we're going to do chapter 7 in 1. Okay? We're then going to do chapter 8 in 6 because it is so rich and full of wonderful things to kind of explore and enjoy um, that it's worth slowing down and, and spending that time on it. Um, and uh, he, he, he's spelling out all the things that are true of being under this new ownership, being uh, in Christ and no longer in Adam, no condemnation new life in the spirit, new identity as children of God, new attitude to suffering as we wait for future glory, new confidence of God's love, whatever happens, new assurance that nothing can separate us from God's love. And the key throughout this is to see this new life that we're given is not one again that comes from inside us. It's one that is given to us, that we take part in, that we participate in. So the, we, need, we need the Holy Spirit to work in us to produce fruits, you know, to produce the new windows and getting rid of the rats and all of that stuff. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in us 
not our work. I can't naturally start loving other people and loving God and living in a way that pleases him. I cannot do that. But the Holy Spirit in me can. So you know that song that we sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's what that, that's what that song means. It's picking on something, something deeply uh, biblical. The Christian life is not something that we do in our own strength. We're not just left to carry on. You know, it's not that you get saved and then off you go and you just have to go and do the Christian life by yourself now. You know, you, you, you knew that what you were doing before was wrong. You've got a clean slate. Now you better just carry on and, and try a bit harder to be nice. And uh, we know that that's impossible and it's really discouraging if you just try like that. But that isn't the Christian life. The Christian life is being united to Christ by the Holy Spirit who lives in us and who then works in us to produce the fruit he wants to give us to make us more like Jesus um, and to uh, turn us into the people that uh, are, are ready to be with God forever. And so the, 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 we're going to finish in a second, but the, the key application questions that will be the ones that we need to explore in, our, in the sermons and in the Bible studies in particular are these kinds of things. Okay, so if we're saved by grace, does it matter how we live? Okay, can you, can you see that, that, that's what, that we've seen that question, haven't we, in these, in these chapters? We saw that particularly in chapter six. But if we're saved by grace, does it matter how we live? What's the relationship between how we live and, and what God has done for us? These chapters bring all that together. Um, what about our battle with sin? Can I ever really stop being selfish and living for myself? Can I ever really love others? Can I conquer my short temper, my lustful thoughts and my greed and my anger? You know, that we, we've seen, well, no, the answer is no, you can't. But Jesus can. The Holy Spirit can in you as you trust him by faith. That is the Christian life. What can I pray for myself and others in the face of suffering? So any comments or questions either off the back of the Romans 7 bit, should have paused after that to see what people think, but that or, or any of the other bits, any comments or questions? So, yeah, it's not let go and let God, um, but that is, that is where what we mean by faith is, is important. So um, in chapter one, um, through him we've received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith, or more literally the obedience of faith for his name's sake. So faith is something that will, will make you look different in your life. Um, so it's not, it isn't, yeah, it's not an automatic thing. It's not a, um, and that's why all are in Adam, but only some are in Christ. And the difference is faith. But the question is, what do we mean then when we say, I live by faith? And when Paul's, and in Galatians, Paul says this, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. Um, and um, the, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the life I live in the body, I live by faith. So that is the key thing. It's what we mean by live by faith. Um, it's not just if I stand here, I can expect to become more holy. But at the same time, it's, um, it's not, well, I better just jolly well work hard then to be more holy. It is, no, what I need to do is trust the gospel and trust Jesus day by day. So that will mean, what will that mean? It will mean confess my sin, thank him for, for what he's done for me, walk with him day by day. And that is how he changes us, as we trust him. And then he produces his fruit in us. Yeah, no, good question. So what is the relevance of teaching about the law to Christians today who are not Jewish? 
um, who, and who aren't tempted to specifically go for the law of Moses. Okay, now, yeah, that's a that's a big question, and and um, I think that, that, that I think my basic answer is my, my understanding of the uh, of the the, the relationship between the Christian and, and the law is that yes, there is something specific here about. Um, the, the the way that the, the 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 law functioned in the life of Israel, but behind all that, there is an even more fundamental sense in which human beings constantly turn whatever situation they're in into an opportunity to earn brownie points and to prove ourselves. Okay, so the point the point for the the point was that the. Jewish people of, you know, the Old Testament people used the law, which was meant to be a, a, th a positive thing. They turned it into a ladder to climb up to God. But so do people who aren't, who, aren't, who, who, who haven't been given that particular law. We all do it in different ways. And so while in one sense, yes, you can get the specifics of what he's saying apply specifically to this Jew-Gentile thing, there is a more general sense in which all human beings will tend towards thinking, yes, but it must be about what I, what I do. Um, and the, the kind of religious law keeper um, that, you know, we see in our own lives today, which has nothing to do with being Jewish, as it were, but has to do with being a human being who wants to prove that they're good enough. And so looks to what they do rather than to Jesus. Does that help that? Yeah. And that, that, you know, that is a question that is batted around massively, but that would be where, where I would go with that. Let's, uh, let, me, let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we thank you for these chapters. We look forward to looking at them in more detail and with some of these questions that we've raised this evening and some of the things we've begun to, to think about we pray that over the coming weeks that you would give us further clarity and insight into what you're saying in this part of your word so that we might see what what you're saying to us in our lives today um, thank you for that picture of the christian life as one where you are transforming us as we live by faith, as we trust in Jesus. Help us to see the difference between seeking to win your favour by what we do and living as those who are now in Christ, who have no condemnation, in whom you are working a new life of obedience as we trust in Jesus. And help us to be able to encourage each other in our small groups, particularly as we study these verses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.